Training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pendola Project. Hey now, welcome back to the Pendola Project. As always, I get to be your host, and I'm Matt Pendola. Today, I have Ryan Golak with me. He was on episode 112, and we talked about what is optimal for strength and conditioning. So if you haven't heard that one yet, certainly give that one a listen after today's podcast. Ryan, how are you? I am great, Matt. I'm back. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I know you You are a reoccurring guest. You're going to be back quite a bit more. I'm really grateful that you're willing to share your knowledge with our audience because Bobby... He says one and one makes 11. When you have two people that really do put the the best of what they've learned together, I think you get a better result. And you have people that are willing to share information, what they've learned. That always is the best result in the way to serve others better. So we appreciate you giving your information to us. Our audience really loves to get technical and our audience loves to put a lot of this information into their own training. I've gotten a lot of feedback from people about what they've done and what kind of influence they get. So those nuances really do matter. But even if you're a very beginner, you know, what what I wish I had known then, what I know now, right? I I think that you would feel the same way, right, Ryan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think experience plays the biggest role in any industry, really. But for ours, the educational component is just fractional compared to what it's like to put your hands some well sound right but to get, to get basically get experience working with different people and uh different environments different sports different ages i think that's right by itself is uh, priceless yeah no for sure i mean where you put your hands that's that's yeah. your own business ryan but i i actually was talking to you a little bit before the podcast just about how many of us are concerned with form and what it is that form really means when it comes to training? What do we have to be concerned with? And this is actually something that I know you really wanted to talk about after the last podcast. So I think that would be a great subject to talk about today. Just, you know, what what is perfect positioning and, and how much does it matter? And I think like most things, the answer is it depends. So we're going to talk about what matters when, I think might be a good way to, to think about that. So Ryan, you wanted to talk about assessments first. And so I'll let you kick this off with an assessment. What are you looking for? And in particular, how somebody is, is moving? Do, do they have to show you perfect form on, the, on their assessment to be optimal or non-optimal? In other words, to pass or fail an assessment with you? Right. I think, again, as you said earlier, it depends, but an assessment to me, and I'm sure that when you're working with athletes and you're working with general populace, you have different things that you're looking at, sports-specific, different things that you're looking at. But I think that we all have this understanding of a foundational skill set, so to speak, from a strength conditioning standpoint, right? You're, you're obviously do some work with specific running style coaching as well, but if I'm looking at it from a strength and conditioning standpoint, I want people to be able to demonstrate that they can successfully perform a basic movement, squat, some sort of a hinge motion, lunge motion, 
push, pull, you know, your basic, your foundational stuff, rotations. I want to see all that in some way, shape or form. And I've varied my assessment throughout the years and I've still haven't really come to where I'm like, this assessment shows me everything I need. So I kind of let what they do dictate and what their symptoms are or whatever it is. I let it dictate the flow of what I see. But for me, I don't want to see an optimal motion. I want to see a spectrum. So if I have somebody squatting, uh, you know, if somebody squats two feet apart or four feet apart or toes out or toes in, I want to be able to see that the knee can track with the toes or can externally rotate at the hip or their hinge, their hinge and knee angles both move. I mean, someone might be more of a big, deep hinge squatter and someone might be a really forward squat. I don't really think either of those is perfect, but it depends on what that person needs and it depends on how they look doing it. So you get, you'll get a lot of kickback from the idealists, right? It's like, this is exactly how your squat needs to look. And if it doesn't look like this, it's not going to be strong or you're going to get hurt. And I don't think that, I don't think that's fair because we're all an individual and we all have specifics. It's like, okay, well, yeah, I didn't love that. How does it feel? feels fine. Okay. Well, when does it hurt? Oh, well, when I do this and that kind of gives me a roadmap to where I'm like, all right, well, the position doesn't dictate the recruitment. So the body's smart enough to cheat it, right? We can look at it and go, okay, well, your squat looks pretty good. I don't know. Why do your knees hurt? Well, I don't know. You're just cause your squat looks good. Doesn't mean that we're getting great hamstring activation or we're getting great core activation. So how can we scale that assessment and look at those isolated pieces? So in my idea of assessment, it's like, okay, let's look at the basic movement patterns. Okay. Let's break that down. Let's look at what may or may not be causing some sort of discomfort or some sort of out of position motion and then go from there. So that's kind of, that's how I look at an assessment, which is pretty vague, but I think you have to be able to progress it throughout an individual's session. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Like what you're saying, in other words, though, I'm going to turn it on to what I'm looking for relatively. Okay. So in, instead of saying functional, I try to turn that around and say, what is relative here? So relative to your needs, your sport, your goal, um, but also, and probably primarily your biomechanics, your body, your, your history, your gym age, all these things matter. When I look at people who can squat ass to grass and get full range and they look perfect. And, you know, maybe that is somebody that has spent years developing that skill set. That is rarely the person who is an elite athlete, at least not the type of elite athlete that I'm looking at working with for the Olympic 10,000 meters. So in other words, how relative is that for a 10,000 meter runner to go ass to grass? And I will, I will say that I'll give some passive assessments, maybe some stuff where can we do a hip slide and can we get our hip into that end range? Do we have the ability to do that? Yes. Okay. Now we get into something that's more active and 
we have them do, I, I call them a wall splat, but they'll have their hands up on the wall, they'll squat down, and I have them go until what's comfortable for them to see where they can get to. But oftentimes, this is where I've been even told by athletes that have worked with other coaches and programs, well, my last strength coach told me I had to get down below parallel. And that's where I think this is an interesting conversation. Maybe we could go from there because I think we'd really help a lot of people. Just giving that particular athlete I was talking to permission to understand that we can do a lot of other things to get the capacity where we want it to be for your needs, but also to keep you healthy and strong long-term to increase your shelf life. But we, we obviously want to be able to give you a program that's going to help you now and in the future and well beyond the, the, the podium, if you will. So I think this is a good subject to uh, kind of springboard off of. And with, with something like that, I was having that athlete do some sled pushes where they got some good bipedal action going and they were in a great angle for their biomechanics and definitely a lot of bang for their buck getting stronger. That is what my main concern was, at least for that relative readiness for their sport. And I was able to take, take her through uh, some, some strength positions where she was working on just even her initial inertia, pushing that weight with the sled for uh, a cluster set, 10 seconds of a heavy push, relaxed for 20 to 30 to even 40 seconds, and then another 10-second push and get that inertia going. Now we're able to start to work on her acceleration a little bit more, etc. Now, we didn't get her into those deeper ranges in a squat, but we did do some other things where um, I call them DRAs, where we did some distraction, reaction, action type of movements for end range for her hips, but in a capacity that she was able to do it, to understand it, and to learn from it. So that's my initial thoughts on that is that we can, we can hit these things that are more relative for that person and then also just be aware that we should probably try to work towards better range over time. That's, that's kind of what I'm getting to. What's your thoughts on this, Ryan? Yeah, and I, I agree with you in the mindset that realistically, if we look at an athlete, how many sports require you to be below parallel? I mean, an Olympic lifter, obviously your entire sport revolves around weight training, right? A catcher, you've got to stay down in that deep squat position. Gymnast, maybe. Diver. Like you have very, very small spectrum of sports that require this massive amount of range so when you're looking at this term of relativity and i think that's a really good way to look at it because for example i have i have a catcher that i've worked with for a while and you know he gets one-sided it pain and i tried a handful of things you know from lateral hip strength to medial hip strength to looking at rotation but he is so foundationally strong that I, like, I'm like reaching to try to find something that seems like a deficit to the point where I even sent him to one of our PTs that we have in our clinic. And 
he took him through his full assessment and like he's scratching his head the whole time. Like he's taking him through, you know, Y balance test and all these different range of motion work and stability work. And he's, you know, can't find anything. And the only thing that I have ever really been able to do is look at what are his frequent patterns in his sport. Right. So I look and I, I break down, what is his what is his rise to throw look like right in slow like so when he comes out of that squat stance and then he goes and makes that motion in the k what is the what does he need when he's hitting and the interesting thing that i found with him is that he requires internal rotation on his right leg to hit but he gets the majority of his internal rotation work on his left leg when he comes out of his squat stance and he pivots into his throw now that's very specific, right? But for him, he's so strong in what we would consider a assessment that I would have never seen any. I'd be like, mm, looks pretty good, right? And then, and he's strong. So I start nitpicking things to be like, well, you know what? It's not even that his range of motion is that much different. It's where he controls it and where he activates it from. And he has this massive internal rotation to his left and then when he goes to kick in on his right it just doesn't want to rotate the same his right's the where he's getting all his symptoms something all right well we have to do some sort of loaded activated internal rotation on that right side just to get his brain to accept that he's allowed to move there and so when you're talking about building this work capacity and building up these range of motions that comes from just getting the body to trust it right it's not that that person can't get there unless there's some biomechanical issue right they have hip dysplasia or they have some weird anomaly in the pelvis that allows them to not break some certain range of motion but outside of that everybody should have the capacity to move but they have to be able to control it okay so let let me just jump in on this part and say i love we think so much alike because I'm shaking my head up and down. Yes, yes, yes. As you're talking, because oftentimes when I have an athlete that tests very well and they're optimal, or if I have an athlete that I'm talking to over the phone and it's all through zoom these days, and I don't have time to do an assessment with them. I, I would like to get to that, but they're asking me right now, um, what can I do? And do you have any advice for me? That's my favorite, right? I have no idea who you are, but I can give you some advice. But I try to do my best and I just ask them really, well, tell me what you've been doing. And from there, usually I try to think about what they haven't been doing as a potential solution, at least for now, right? To look at these things. And when I when I look at athletes that are they progress quite a bit in their strength, like this athlete you're talking about. It, to me, the, the, the answer isn't always that we have to go harder than last time. Because, again, I think that that can work for people who are making the gym their main focus. But that's not most of us. And that's where it's funny, but a lot of athletes that they just – they really want to just um, – maybe do a, a, a local competition or a Spartan race or just feel better like we talk about and, uh, and be able to toss their grandkids around and have, have fun that way. This is, 
I think actually really relative for them the same way that I would um, create programming and adapt for even elite athletes in that we are looking at what is relative versus somebody who is just going to be able to focus all of their time and energy in the gym four to five days a week and making that just their main focus. So I think that when we talk about what we can do with somebody who's already gotten strong enough, you know, are you strong enough? Okay, if we are strong enough in these patterns, instead of trying to get even stronger or go even heavier, that might be diminishing returns now. And it might not be worth the risk of going that much heavier for maybe 1% better in performance, right? Then I try to look at things like, okay, can we improve our proprioception? Is that something that we haven't focused on as much because we've been doing a lot of big three stuff, right? We've been squatting and deadlifting and, and, and bench pressing. Uh, can we start to do some things that are going to really create a, a bigger demand for our body's awareness in space? But then also, I believe I'm saying this right, uh, interoception, right? Which is just when the, the body is, is now, say you have your arm over your head, and it's over your head while you're doing a, a uh, farmer's walk or something like that. Um, or I could even, say, have somebody doing what I call a sprinter's walk where they're up on their, their toes and they're on their balls of their feet. And every time they step, they have to pull their, their toe up. And so in that bipedal motion, one toe is going up in the air with the heel off the ground and the other heel is off the ground as, as well, but with the toes down, the ball, the foot down on the ground. Now they might have, let's say, not even a heavy uh, kettlebell or something like that, but say they have a 15 pound kettlebell over their head and they're now doing that sprinter's walk, but with that arm overhead for, let's say about 30 seconds, to a minute, and maybe they're going forward and backwards on something like that. They're they're uh, getting comfortable being uncomfortable, and the the message is being sent from that feeling, from that perception, from their body to their brain. That's part of that um, that uh, that interoception I was talking about there. So that that to me com- starts to combine more of those proprioceptive qualities. Um, and also starting to work a little bit more on uh, the, the interoception. And that, to me, might be the link that they need to focus on more instead of going heavier. So now we, we've taken a 15-pound weight, and we're helping them to advance. It's something they haven't done in a while. And then when we go back to their, their lifts, they're actually lifting uh, heavier, go figure, and they didn't have to do as much accumulation to do that, right? So that's just an example to me. Did that make sense? I feel like that could get down a little bit in the weeds, but I was trying to, to, to have that make sense. Does that make sense, Ryan? Yeah, so the way I take that is this concept of integration. So foundational patterns are integrated, right? If I have somebody squatting or deadlifting, we use those big movements or kind of the big bang words in, in strength conditioning, but there it's an integrated pattern, right? I'm connected from the floor all the way through my hands or all the way through my torso, but it isn't 
movement specific. It's all I'm doing is I'm doing a basic foundational thing. So what you're talking about is this concept of building up these intrinsic muscle activations that are probably undervalued in most strength coaches when they're looking at a big pattern. So let's take your sprinter's walk. You're up on the toes. You're getting those intrinsic feet, foot muscles on that base support foot. Then you're creating some sort of a neurological loop to counteractivate on the opposite side. You're throwing something else in the overhead position so that you're having to become aware of where you are. And I don't know that people really look at this, and I'm sure that you do because this is what you deal with. But if we look at kind of the foundational patterns of movement, well, at least the stuff that I was kind of original originally taught, you see you have a squat, you have a hinge, you've got a push, pull, twist, and then you have your gait. And then gait gets translated through different coaches as carries or something. But gait is the most complex pattern we have. Right? A squat is minimalistic compared to the fact that you have to coordinate you know, your cross-crawl patterns from the arm to the leg. You're on one leg and you're shifting to the other. Add running to that where you're now only translating on one leg at any given time. That gets really, really undervalued because we just do it. Right? I'm out on the street. I'm walking. If I look at someone and they, you know, they're awkward. I don't use any worst word but when you look at and you analyze it and you go what the hell is going on right there right but to them that's a normal gait pattern or someone i the other day i saw a kid running and i mean he looked like a gazelle like the, it was just so fluid it was so comfortable and being someone that works with runners i'm sure that anytime you see someone running you're looking at them but I do that too. And I'll look and it's, it's a very simple thing. You either see someone that looks comfortable running or you see someone that it just doesn't look comfortable, right? It doesn't matter if it's long stride or short stride. It's like someone either looks really comfortable doing it or they look really uncomfortable doing it. You that looks like it hurts. Yeah. So I just want to say that to me, I cut it down into two categories. You see somebody who is uncomfortable they're jogging. I call that jogging or jogging. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that? Today. That Will Ferrell movie? Yeah. Uh, something called jogging. Man. Yes, there you go. A great movie. But uh, so so that's jogging, and that's that's fine. That's uh, some people. That's their best attempt, and at running. But running running is really to me that's that smoothness. That's that you're gliding along, and when you see that person, that's that's running. That's a runner. And running, I've always said, is the most complex pattern. So the, the fact that people don't think runners are real athletes sometimes, that, that's, my, that's probably my biggest pet peeve because the, the, the people who have really developed that skill set and have that, um, it, it takes years and years and years to get to make it look that easy. And so it is a high level skill set, but it's a specific skill set again. So it's just different uh, needs and different skill sets for different sports, but it is a high level skill set. So I'm glad you said that, but go ahead and continue. Well, so I'll tell you what I've been looking at a lot lately is I work with, like if I do education stuff with trainers that, that we have at the facility and a trainer that's been, an athlete that's been in the gym, that's been doing things for 10, 15, 20 or more years, right? 
just like someone who has only been doing their sport for so long, you create this patterning. And it doesn't matter if it's perfect or it's not perfect. You're still creating a specific pattern. And you brought this up earlier when you talked about shelf life. And then you talked about doing a phone interview with someone and you're like, okay, well, what are they doing? What have they not been doing? Right. And I think about that from longevity standpoint alone, where I just in my own exploration of me and now being in my forties and having several more years of strength training under my belt. And I go, that shouldn't feel like that. But if I were, if I have someone analyze me or look at my pattern, like it looks good. So what I start looking at is how can I move people? If someone has a foundational base, they have core control. They are reasonably strong. Their patterning looks pretty good. How can I train them out of that? How, where can I put them that is in a different position that's going to make them have to now create a different proprioceptive nature or whatever it is? And here I've, I've kind of integrated, and I use strongman just because if you watch strongman events, it's, it's awkward, and every single thing they do looks like it should injure them, and it very rarely does. And you're talking about loads that are way above and beyond anything that we would even bat an eye at. So I look at just the, the way that they move and I go, you know what, why can't you load someone in a flexed spine bent over position? Why can't I do that? Well, if someone is just weak and has no foundation and is scared to death of bending over because they herniated a disc 20 years ago, okay, that's why I can't give that person the position. But if I have had someone that has been squatting and deadlifting and doing fixed position presses and pulls and everything super neutral and locked down tight. I have to get them out of that. And I had a great experience with just one of our trainers. When we walked through this, my first, when I really kind of had this thought and I was walking people through this and I took them through what I called the matrix uh, movement pattern, which you've seen the movie, the matrix when he's dodging the bullets and he's kind of arching back and it's all in slow motion. So I had them go through basically a loaded spinal flexion variability movement. So standing up and no, like not dictating any way to do it. Just take your left hand, reach down and try to touch your right toes. Then do the opposite way, right? Then try to do it behind you. Try to take your left hand and reach your right heel. And the goal was just to see what the body did to get there. And the interesting thing is that a lot of the people that were trained to be in this really neutral spine, you're like, okay, core control, right? No flexion that had years of back pain, put them into just like a light 20 pound loaded spinal cross flexion that everyone would be like, no, can't do that. Right. Back feels 10 times better coming out of two reps. Cause all of a sudden you've neurologically turned off all of those hypertonic fibers that have just been working over time. Like, okay, well, shelf life and longevity, a 70-year-old grandfather is going to want to bend down and pick their grandkid up, right? A 70-year-old athlete's going to want to be able to make a lateral cut on a basketball court, even if it's at a much lower level. So if I start taking those patterns away from them because it's not optimal or it's not specific in a strength and conditioning world, I'm not doing them any favors. And the same thing with an athlete. I'm going to train the crap out of their glutes because I want external rotation, external rotation, external rotation. Then you take someone and really look at what they do is in their job or in their sport or whatever it is. And you go, 
he's got to go into internal rotation. His body has to be able to move there. Look at running backs. Like you look at like a Barry Sanders or someone like the really, really elite of the elite and the way their body shifts when they go to make a cut right and the way that they can just basketball players too, they can sit someone down by making that cut. And if you slow that down, take a still frame and look at what their knee joint looks like and you go, oh, they're injured for sure. And yes, a lot of those players come out of the high end stuff and they and they hurt. But it, I don't think it's because they make that motion. I think it's because it's just repetitive wear and tear. And maybe nobody's conditioning them to be there. Condition them here. Condition them here. Condition them here. Okay. Well, what about this angle? What about full spinal flexion? What about you know a full gymnastics back bend? Can you get there? Why not? And then. Yes, maybe some of that has a purpose and some of it doesn't. But that's kind of what I look at is when you take something away from somebody, take them out of their optimal position that they've spent so long in, they may get a change of recruitment. They may get a down regulation of some of this stuff that's overworking. So same thing with like if you take a golfer and you say, okay, go play an entire round left-handed. Of course they're not going to do very well, but you're shifting it. You're putting them to where they weren't. And then all of a sudden their body starts to go, oh, look at these muscles exist, and now this side doesn't hurt as much. So that's a lot of what I've been working in, and that was kind of my main point that I wanted to bring up in this in this podcast is like, yes, foundation is great, core control is great, and spinal alignment is awesome, but can you function safely outside of that? Because you will get in trouble at some point. You have a runner that is super core control and tight and they move like a gazelle and they hit a, and they're not paying attention they hit a curb and they take that like lateral step off and just that motion of trying to count you know catch themselves and it tweaks their back because they have no rotational ca- capacity right or they have no they have no frontal plane capacity it's like little things like that that are very preventable by just training someone outside of their comfort zone yeah, absolutely. And this is a good point to bring up about how we are, of course, meant to rotate. Everything that we do requires us to be have the ability to, to rotate. But you mentioned I work with a lot of elite runners that might spend a lot of time on the track and the road. One of the things that I try to get them to do is just even on an easy day, and it doesn't have to be anything too advanced, risk versus reward, but I believe trail running is an important aspect of every runner's program, even an elite track runner, because there's those constant variations. And so, sure, I might be doing mountain running where there's a high risk level to where if I trip, then I'm going to I'm going to eat it and I might break something, right? And that's that's different. I wouldn't be doing that with somebody who is trying to go to Tokyo in the 10,000 meters. But that being said, I think that even just doing some running in the park and some uh, some just variables running on the grass and and through the dirt and and even just uh having to 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 um adjust to those terrain conditions can be really, really important just for starting to work on some of those proprioceptive benefits we've been talking about. And I I think a good thing to bring up, though, is when do we 
think that form needs to be corrected. So, for example, something when you were talking that I was thinking about is uh, let's take the trunk. Let's take now I I. I start with what I call spinal tap. I've, I've kind of dubbed that term. It, to me, I don't like saying core because I feel like it's so misused. Just like I don't like to say functional. I yep. say relative. I got to be different, right? Yep. But, but I really do think that spinal tap makes more sense to the athletes that I uh, work with because it really connects to them that this is about getting integrated and getting <laughs> tapped in to my potential. So, for uh, the last episode, 112, we talked more about breathing. So that'd be the first thing that I always like to address is really getting that deep breathing going. So you should listen to that episode again to, to hear more details about that. But I'll now go more into the, the skeletal muscle aspect of things. So the QL, that's, that's a deep abdominal muscle that most people don't even really know much about. And they might know that it hikes their hip. They, I, they might not know that working together, that it'll help to erect the spine. But regardless, when they are doing something in, uh, I'll take the, uh, the oblique type of movements, um, to really get the QL to kick in and hip hike, then I want to see that they're actually pulling that hip and they're hiking that hip a little bit and they're getting the um, internal oblique involved. And then when they're trying to go top down, so I'm talking about that uh, serapi effect where we have the serratus anterior and using the external oblique and we're going top down. A lot of times when I see them doing an oblique type of movement, they're just flapping their arms. They're They're not actually initiating that action with their with their torso so that's uh, that's an example of when i would correct a position and say you're you're, you might not be doing what you think you're doing right now and it is important to pay attention to these details so that's one thought and then the other one i have is just going back to again uh gym age and what people know Um, If someone has very little experience doing uh, movements, and especially if you're just getting into a a strength program, I think just the Miyagi method is something I always go back to is just, you know, uh, just sand the floor, paint the fence, right? Just really understand that those basics are best. And I call them the base basics for that reason. Um, Let's not try to get too fancy, but... When we let's just take the plank because I was just talking about obliques. Obliques are often trained like in a side plank or something like that. I think that the planks can serve a good purpose, especially in the beginning, just getting in an uh, isometric position, hold the position, get comfortable in that position. But when I see maybe a newbie, somebody who's just starting out, they're not even elevating themselves like they're they're starting right on the ground in that plank position and they're not hiking their hip at all or they're not controlling their hip position so they're spinning their hip back or forward it's too difficult too soon just because it's body weight and it's the ground doesn't mean that it's not advanced so you know getting them up on a more inclined position i think is important but getting them to really be able to focus on their breathing first and staying in an isometric position, that's a good start. Then I think there's a point where those uh, planks are something I'm not a big fan of for 
uh, especially advancing your training, um, because I think that you have to do something to make it asymmetrical. So that's where I would start to add in a leg lift and start to work on those patterns as soon as I can get that client to understand their positioning. So um, I might just have them in some basic isoplanks for a few weeks, but I'm going to try to get them, even if they're elevated, get them to start to move one leg at a time or have them move one arm at a time or the right arm and the left leg, you know, that these type of bird dog positions where we are working on asymmetrical patterns so that it could advance their system for those more highly coordinated efforts. Like you mentioned with the gate, that's what makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense is just to hold these stiff positions and you've been doing that. I can do a plank for five minutes. Well, good for you. I, how long can I hold a plank? I don't know because I wouldn't waste my time doing that for five minutes. Uh, you know, that, that's my rant. What do you think about, about that, Ryan? And do you have any other thoughts on when you would change somebody's form? Yeah, I think, I think you're right on with looking at that those integrated patterns have to be kind of brought down so you're talking about well i'm doing some sort of a cross crawl pattern right some sort of anterior oblique sling thing where i'm moving arm with rotation and it just looks like the arms in motion and you go okay well i have to just target what's going on at the midsection the other big one for me is obviously pain if if somebody is doing a movement that and they go into it and if it doesn't look perfect to me and it's painful, I, well, I got to make an adjustment there, whether it's take them out of that movement and do an activation drill or modify the movement verbally or some sort of external cueing. I need to see if I can get that pain or that discomfort to diminish by just by making a tweak. And that to me alone says, all right, well, there's obviously a pattern that has been creating this discomfort so what is it that doesn't seem like it's keeping up and i'm not really one to be overly iso um, isolated in when i'm doing training unless again you're talking about a training age where someone just has no concept of movement like the clamshell i i think the clamshell has a place but i just like the plank it's this overused like sit on your side and just how many reps do you need to tell your to tell your glute to work and then you have these people going to these really exaggerated ranges like okay well great your piriformis is getting really strong but that wasn't really our intention planks the same way i agree if you if you look at kind of i call it a power plank but the rkc plank which was um the russian kettlebell system it's a total body tensioning, right? The goal is that you're, that a plank is supposed to mimic what your stabilization is in standing. So if I'm doing a, you know, just a front plank, I want to create kind of that tension through the core. I want to squeeze the glutes. I want to fire the lats. I want everything to kind of be what it would be if I were standing and stable side plank as well. You see these people that will side plank and they just want to hit their obliques. So they're kind of hinged forward and their heads forward and they're, and they're rolled in and they're, and they're kind of picking their hip up and dropping it. Okay, great. So if you're going to have a really great anterior oblique, but it's not going to work. And then I go, okay, extend your hips and just bring yourself into one straight line. And they can't bring their hip two inches off the ground because there's no lateral line of the hip available 
that ql and that internal oblique line and that shoulder stabilization none of it exists because they're so used to being flexed forward and just banging on those obliques so the oblique is not its purpose is not to be able to lift you off the ground right the purpose is to be able to accelerate or decelerate rotations be able to resist motion when you're if you're in the really exaggerated gates meant to resist you so you don't end up flailing left to right so why are we working so hard to kind of develop this muscle that really needs to be integrated more than developed? So when we talk about this idea of when do I coach someone? Well, I coach someone when I think it's relative to what they need at the time, whether it be a pain issue, whether it be a recruitment, a visual recruitment issue, uh, whether it be a performance issue. Okay. Single leg stance, right? I someone stand and I pick and they pick their leg up and they try to do a hip hike. Well, if I look at them walk, it doesn't look bad, and then I have them do this hip hike and they're significantly weaker on one side, it's gonna translate. So that becomes an issue of like, okay, I need to coach them in something like this. Maybe it's a step up or maybe and I need to see how it looks. And if it looks drastically different than the opposite side that's going to present a problem eventually, even if they have no discomfort now. So those are where I think the big coaching pieces come in is knowing that it is globally different, knowing that it is painful, or knowing just because they have no advanced level of strength training that they need to be coached up first. And then once they're coached up, once their body gets it, once they've become awareness now, can you control it here? Can you control it outside over here? Can you control it in this rotational angle? And that's where it becomes more fun as a strength coach, right? You could, if you're a basic coach that's just like, okay, I'm going to train a squat. Every day we're going to come in and we're going to squat. Sometimes heavy, sometimes light, we're squatting. Okay. I mean, you're going to get some results from that, but it doesn't sound very interesting to me. To me, I want to look at how someone moves. I go, okay, how can I make this creative? How can I how can I get them moving a little bit out of position without, you know, being, you know, obnoxious, right? Like, you know, one leg standing on a balance board, juggling a baton and, and wearing a weight vest. You know, I mean, I don't need it to be that, but I need it to be interesting because their body has to be able to adapt to that. I just had a nice conversation with Nick Custer. He's a batting coach here in, in Reno, and I think he's going to be on the podcast in uh, in another few weeks or so. But he said something that I really liked about he's working with one of the athletes. We're sharing an athlete that is working on his batting, and he said it's not as much about what I can put into his swing. It might be things that we can take away from it. And I thought that was really, that's a great way to think of it as, uh, as, as a coach's eye, because sometimes I think that we can get excited about what we know and then want to, and it's what we have good intentions, but then like, oh, let me, let me show you, this is the better, this is the better way because I know this and you don't know it. So I'm going to teach you something and that's going to be valuable and you got to leave the ego aside and sometimes think about well, why is that person choosing to pattern it this way 
And that's something that I think would be nice to to talk about here because uh, I'll take, for example, one of the um, podium uh, project athletes that, that I'm working with now. She was actually in her running gait. She was actually trying to get her foot to land neutral and, and uh, instead of letting it turn out, okay? And she was consciously trying to think about that when she was running. So it's interesting. I don't know where she, she came up with that thought process, but that's not something that, um, that you want to think about when you're running, right? These are things that we can focus on when we're patterning in the gym a little bit more. And that's what we, we started that conversation on. But instead of telling her, you know, why she was, she was wrong or what it is that I think I think about it, it's about, okay, what can I take away from this right now with her? And that's, let's look at some more of those patterns. And uh, that's uh, the, the, the motor system or the, the motor uh, engram pattern that um, we're, we're just basically working on how we can get that uh, neuromuscular efficiency better. So patterns to performance is something I wanted to talk about because, again, I think that if we are doing a skill set every 12 hours or so, that's a priming pattern to me. That's, that's where I refer to your personal priming protocol. Maybe we can do it every 12 hours. It's just something for the nervous system to learn from. And every, I'd say, 24 hours or so, we tend to reset. So can we start to throw in some patterns here that will help with the skill set long term? And so I'd like to know your, your thoughts on that, how you approach that, Ryan, because, you know, again, I think we have, we mean well, but as coaches, uh, I used to pat myself on the back when I'd say, okay, lift your sternum, okay, because that's how we're going to get rid of that hunchback, and we're going to lift our sternum, and wow, look at that, you're in a better position already, and, and you said something before interesting about, you know, is our spine really straight, right, and so uh, it wasn't about lifting the sternum, not for especially a long-term solution, right? It was about developing better patterns and also maybe really looking at our lifestyles and looking at the entire culture around our patterns, not just uh, trying to give them a cue, especially something that is just a quick fix. Oftentimes, those quick fixes don't last unless we really understand the person and their biomechanics behind it. So are we talking to a circle or a square? I mean, some some people could be uh, start off as I started off as a circle, then I had a tree crush my spine, and now I'm a square. That's what I mean by that. I run differently now than I did before that. And I ran differently when I was younger before I attempted 120 mile weeks before I was really ready. That's, so that, that changes things. And with my left side of my spine being essentially almost like fused up, if somebody were to look at my gait now, they would tell me I'm running at too low of an RPM. And as a coach, if I looked at that same person, if I looked at that, I would say, yeah, their RPMs are pretty low. But let's understand first Maybe what I chose to do is get myself even stronger through things uh, like my deadlifts and my Bulgarian, uh, you know, lunges and things like that, right? And 
now I can gulp up more ground because I have more strength. And yeah, I, my feet are landing under my hips pretty nicely or where I feel like they should, but my RPMs are definitely lower than when I was younger. That gives me the ability to do the running the way I can do it. And at the speeds I run at past my injuries. So that has changed me from being more of closer to, um, you know, 90, 95 RPMs a minute down to something like, uh, you know, 80, uh, 85. And, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that people just sometimes, again, jump to that conclusion that everybody should run at 95 in this scenario because that's the average between 90 and 100. And, and that's my point is, well, we have to know if we're looking at a circle, a square, an explanation point, a, a star. I mean, what, you know what I mean? What kind of uh, person are we looking at? And uh, do we really understand that before we just start throwing out advice? So uh, I know I threw a lot at you there, but what, what's your thoughts as I was talking about those things? So, uh, interesting, um, about that hitting coach. There's a, there's a strength coach that I follow has been in the industry forever. His name is Dan John. And he has a very similar quote. That's, um, I don't remember exactly what the quote is, but it's basically a great coach has the ability to not add to a program, but take away. And it really does become about less because what you're doing with less over time is you're able to identify what does create that individual. What is the individual's main problem? If, if I have some, even, even let's just take an example of as a strength coach, if I'm working with a strength athlete and I'm working with someone whose primary goal is to get stronger, that still has to exist because I'm not, I'm only going to, I'm going to plateau, right? If I have him, I want someone to squat 900 pounds and he's been squatting 725 for five years and just can't break that. His squat is not the problem, right? How his squat looks is not the problem. So what is the problem? How do I take this person that I have had on a routine global strength protocol and it stopped working? Why is it not working for him? Because it's working for everyone else or it's working for 10 other people. All right got to break it down now right so now let's take this piece out let's have you look directly at what the hamstrings doing or let's take a look at directly what's going on at the core that's applicable if that's applicable to someone that is strictly training to be stronger it's tenfold more important for someone whose main goal is not strength right so if i take someone that deadlifts great but I have to put them through a Spartan race, right? Competitive Spartan race. Okay. Well, what component did that great deadlift really do when he's having a problem at the rope climb or he's gassing out on the back 20 miles, you know, it's, there's something else. And that's where to me this, and this could be a podcast in and of itself. Right. But to me, a great coach is made by the ability to understand the individual and not look at them as a athlete or as a client or even as a, say, a runner or a pitcher or whatever their specific is. You have to still see them because you talked about earlier uh, before the podcast, we talked about mindset, right? 
mindset matters. And you're going to have a circle mindset. You're going to have a square mindset. You're going to have the person who's constantly critiquing themselves and overanalyzing everything. And then you're going to have the person that thinks they walk on water. And both of them have a problem. But the problem may not be the same. So I can't take the same position with two personality types and two different body types and two different deficits and give them the same program with the same coaching cues and say, this works because I've seen it work. You're like, great. And this, this I think is the biggest problem in the high end training as well. Professional sport strength coaches are very knowledgeable at strength training, but they have run a program for a group of individuals so frequent and so often that they've to some degree, and this is why I don't want it to sound like I'm coming down on people that are obviously doing something much higher level than, than I am most of the time, but they've had to adapt to training a lot of people and try to come up with the best possible system. And then you take that plus maybe trickle in a little bit of ego and a little bit of this just works. So just trust the process. And you end up in the scenario where you have a handful of people getting hurt or because their mindset was different or their ego took over or they didn't apply it, whatever it was, you have to be able to take someone and understand who they are as an individual first, understand who they are, apply a general program and then nitpick it down to the minimal exposure that you can give them to succeed. I think that this comes down to purposeful practice makes progress. When we, when we look at this, this uh, perfect practice concept and we've been taught this and we're, we're looking at getting this form perfect in, the, uh, in strength training, right? And overanalyzing maybe what somebody else did to be successful and then misinterpreting that for what we need other athletes to be able to fit into that mold to be successful too. Instead of just looking at, we're going to personally look at what you haven't been doing or what we need to bring up to eliminate deficits. And that is going to get that person to be a better version of themselves instead of trying to get them to fit into someone else's Mold And again, when I go to elite athletes, and you mentioned you don't work with a lot of elite athletes most of the time, I, I, I know what you're saying, but I think you do. Because every time uh, I talk to some of, my, some of my athletes that are coming into the facility when I can have it open, but, and they come in and say, oh, you know, you, you probably, I'm just an old guy now, and you probably don't care as much about that. I would get that uh, as you do with you know, your bigger name athletes, that sort of thing is no, no, no. I actually have learned so much by working with you because I figured out some things that really maybe in a different way, but still learning from that has helped even my elites and then vice versa, because we all have, uh, you know, where we all have the, the body <laughs> is still going to be relatively uh, similar in some ways, and then just paying attention to understand what those variables or those nuances need to be to change things up. And even just, again, going back to the, the elites, 
the one percenters, they're not the strongest in the gym. And I think that people think that they are. And uh, of course, you know, again, I, I train a lot of runners, but I've had, you know, Joe Whelan will be on the podcast soon. He was professional. He still is professional baseball player that I was fortunate enough to be his strength coach all the way up until he got to the majors. And, and, and Joe, obviously he's got certain attributes like incredible grip strength and things like that. Uh, really good proprioception, et cetera, as a pitcher, but you know, he's not the strongest dude in the gym by far. And that's important to look at those kind of variables to say, Hey, why is it that I'm so attached to this archetype or these numbers? And, and what is that really doing to serve this person? Um, and, and this is where I think, again, I want to emphasize that it's, I think that that's just misinformation that's out there. It's a lot of what we're seeing on the gram and on YouTube and all these influences again where, wow, you know, this is how strong I should be. And I, I disagree. I think that, uh, again, it comes down to what's relative, but understanding that uh, elite athletes in the one percenters, they, they, they have highly advanced nervous systems. I think that's first. first. And so, if, in other words, if you want to train more like an elite athlete, and let's say you're just, again, uh, just looking for more simple goals, but you, you, know, you want to get something maybe beyond just the aesthetics, um, although I say you train for the, the, the athletics and the aesthetics always come. But let's, let's say that you're that person. Okay, so have you tried closing your eyes to advance the movement? When's the last time you did that? Because that's something that the elites are good at. That's something that they get good at to improve you know, for their sports. And so, you know, you take something instead of taking a movement where you're going to attack on even more weight, let's get down to the Miyagi methods again, and let's close our eyes on this movement. I just had an athlete in earlier today when you came in, he was doing some sets with his eyes closed. And I tell you what, after doing a few repetitions, eyes closed, his, his, his form started actually improving because he was taking his sight away and he was really having to feel things out more. And, and that's where I think that, uh, you know, that type of training is really, um, I think overlooked or just maybe not even thought about very much. So that's my final thoughts on, on this is I think that when it comes to your body and your form, it's, you, you don't have an excuse to just do a movement any which way, that you want to, there is certain variables that you want to consider. You know, if your knees are caving in and kissing each other when you're doing a squat uh, and you're and you're putting 300 pounds on the bar, I, I'd be very concerned. All right. So it's not like there aren't any adaptions or, or rules that that don't cross over. I think some do cross over very well. But I think that um, instead of looking at being perfect, I think we need to be purposeful. So the key takeaway to me here is that we are not trying to be perfect. We're just simply trying to optimize our own movement patterns. Let's compare ourselves to ourselves and make it relative to our needs, to our goals, to our bodies. And from there, I think just a daily commitment to purposeful progress, that is so much more effective 
than thinking practice is going to make perfect. I think that we can overanalyze and we can tend to even cut ourselves off from our own progress because we are trying to fit into a different mold. Let's understand who we are, where we want to be, and that's progress to me. So I want to thank you so much today, Ryan, for coming in. I really appreciate your time. I know the audience does too. Ryan can be found at performancedu.com. He is the Director of Movement Enhancement at performancedu.com. So feel free to contact him there. Let him know your questions or if you'd like to get in contact with him for training. And again, Ryan, thanks so much. Can't wait to have you back on again next month. We'll talk to you guys next time. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. And I do hope that you learned something from it. Just to remind you, please share our podcast, especially if you feel like it's really speaking to you and it's helping you then why not share it with other people so you, they can get that same help too. So anybody that you really feel like would benefit from this, just take a minute and share that with them. I know personally that I listen to other podcasts that I really love and enjoy listening to, and I have good intentions of writing a review or sharing it, and it just doesn't happen. So I get it, but after a year and a half now of doing podcasts and really enjoying the process, I have learned that I really need to ask for this. And this is something that is starting to work. So I'm asking that you guys do take a minute and share that you write a review. Anybody that it can help because it's helping you, you know that it can help them to please share it with them. We want to help as many people as we can. And we are our own sponsors. This podcast is, um, it's a passion. It's something, it's a, lo a love, but it is still a labor as any work still is. And it is something that we do need to get out there so that we can keep doing this and keep serving others. Uh, last little bit here, I want to make sure that everyone knows I do have programs that are coming out for 2021. We're really excited about them. They will be very affordable and something that anybody can sign up for and benefit from. So I'm really looking forward to it. And I know that you guys will love it too. So we'll look forward to getting fit and being healthy in 2021 together. All right. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next time.